Refuel with New Synergy Gasoline. Developed in the same ExxonMobil research lab as F1 Fuels, New Synergy Gasoline has been through and passed some of the most stringent tests ever developed, making it Exxon and Mobil's most tested fuel ever. Synergy Gasoline is engineered with seven key ingredients, including dual detergents to help keep your engine cleaner. New Synergy Gasoline, only available at Exxon and Mobil. Energy lives here. Visit exxon.com, that's exxon.com, or mobile.com, that's mobil.com, for more information. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh and I'm a staff writer for TheRinger.com, joined as always by my fellow staff writer for The Ringer, Michael Bauman. Hello. Hello. I have news, or actually I don't have news. Uh, Craig Calcaterra of NBC has news, but it's exciting news and I want to share it, share it with you. Please do. So I don't know how many people know this about me, but I get really excited about the prospect of a team scoring a run in every inning of in every inning of a game. Oh, like yes. I look at like if I'm at a baseball game, like this is one of those things that you track until it stops until it stops being a possibility, like a no hitter. And it happened right. last night for only the 16th time in Major League history. Huge so, news. Yeah. Who did it? Or no, 17th time. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and But it's the, the second time in two months. So it was the White Sox who did it, and they did it while only scoring 11 runs. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, which is... So that's close to the platonic ideal of the one, one in each run, inning, I, right? I, that's I what you want to see on oh, the scoreboard. Oh, man. I don't even know what I do if <laughs> if I if a team scored exactly one run in every inning. Yeah. It doesn't even have to be one. Like it could if it was exactly two or exactly uh-huh. three would probably actually get a little boring. But I yeah. don't know if there's ever been a I game. I just want where... to see that symmetry. Oh man. I live for the symmetry. So <laughs> huh. yeah, it's uh would not have guessed that the White Sox would be the one to do that. No, the and the last team was scoring that many runs yeah. is in itself an anomaly. And the the last team to do it was the Brewers too. And the Brewers likewise have a crappy offense, so uh-huh. maybe that's the key. You, you know, you don't get all your runs out in bunches. Yeah. You just gotta bleed them to death. Put up that picket fence. <laughs> well, I'm glad you got that moment I'm before really this excited. season was over. <laughs> All right. So uh, later in this episode, we're going to talk about interleague play because for the 13th consecutive season, the AL has beaten the NL fairly soundly this time in interleague play. And we're going to talk to two writers of the sabermetric persuasion from Fangraphs, Dave Cameron and Jeff Sullivan, about why this has been happening for so long and when it might end. And we'll discuss and perhaps dispense with some of the popular theories. So we'll get there. But first... We're going to talk about the AL East, and I have to preface this segment as I prefaced my piece for The Ringer today about this topic with an apology. I didn't set out to talk about the AL East. I know that the first episode of this podcast was AL East-centric. The AL East gets all the attention. It would be nice if the hot spot in the standings was in the NL West this year, say, where we haven't had a more than two-team race that really went down to the wire for several years, or even the NL East, which, as I was working on that piece, I noticed, and you are probably pretty familiar with as an NL East fan— That division really hasn't had an exciting mid-September race ever. (laughs) Or I was going back to before the sixth division era, back to the late 80s, and I was still having trouble coming up with one where there were, you know, more than two teams in play this late in the season. Yeah, that that more than two team qualifier is important because we've had individual two team races, notably the the Phillies and the Mets a couple times during the 
uh, the last decade. But yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's usually there's one or two teams that are on the up and one or two teams that are just absolute garbage. And then usually the Marlins are at 500. So mm-hmm. it's it's not a uh, not conducive to wildness. I don't know. But right. I, I don't apologize. This is how how the balance <laughs> of power shifted. You know, we are. <laughs> Yeah, East Coast bias is alive and well. I this this is how it is, and it's not our fault. So we're just <laughs> yeah. gonna take the facts as they lie. I would describe it as an unbiased look at where the excitement in the standings is concentrated. Yeah. We can't control this. It's, it it's just, not about it's not it about balance. It's about fairness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So uh, we go where the action is, and the action this season is in the AL East, where there are four teams still in contention for first place, and. This has been a a pretty predictable season on the whole. If you look at, say, how this season's standings have actually played out compared to the preseason projections, they're pretty close. I I think just using Fangrass projections as an example, four of the six division winners as of today were picked correctly. There were only seven teams that have missed by more than 50 percentage points of winning percentage. And that is in contrast to last season, which was just a wacky topsy-turvy year where projections only had two of the six division winners right and 17 teams missed by 50 percentage points. No one could predict anything last season. This year has been pretty predictable. And we knew really even before players reported the spring training that the AL was going to be where the balance was. The NL had all of the rebuilding slash tanking teams this year. The AL really had 15 teams that had at least an outside shot of contending or being respectable, at least, coming into this year. So the AL has been where the greatest parity is, and Boston, as we speak, is on top by two games over Toronto. There's then a third game separating Baltimore from Toronto, and then the Yankees are two back of that. And I did some digging, did some research, and this really is almost unprecedented. It is unprecedented in the current division format. If you go back many years to when each league had one division or two divisions and you were talking about seven or eight or ten teams in a division, then you can find quite a few examples of races where at this point in the season there were four teams within, say, three games of first place, which was where the ALE stood on Sunday, or four games of first place, which was where it stood as of Monday morning. But this has not happened since 1988. And of course, it is much harder to do this when there are only four to six teams in the division, or now five teams in the division. Pretty tough to get all four of them within such a tight little band when we're just a a couple weeks away from the end of the season. So this is something that hasn't happened. It is noteworthy. It is worth talking about. And we can talk about how this has happened because it's it's taken a, a string of surprises for all of these teams to end up where they are. Yeah, certainly I'm surprised that immediately after I wrote a glowing piece about how the Toronto Blue Jays were back on top of the division like they were last year, they've gone three and seven since uh-huh. <laughs> uh, since the publication of that piece. Yeah. So and and that's really like I I thought that that's where the where the division was just going to sort of end up with the Blue Jays on top, the Red Sox like a game or two back uh, in the first wild card position, and then either the the Orioles or or the Tigers maybe in the second, but the Blue Jays have gone in the tank and the Red Sox have performed feats like getting Rick Porcello his 20th win, his league leading 20th win, (laughs) which if I had been allowed to bet on that before the season, I would have lost my shirt. Absolutely. Uh Um, Yeah. 
David Price is, and this is one of the, the big things I think is the top three teams in the AL East all have great offenses, but it's just a matter of who's getting their pitching sorted out. Mm-hmm. And the Red Sox have taken a leap with, you know, David Price was a huge source of angst. I know I follow uh, Evan Drellick of the Boston Herald on Twitter and every day was greeted by him arguing with his constituents about the uh, the merits of, of David Price and how much they should panic about their $200 million pitcher uh, posting a four and a half ERA. Uh-huh. But in his, uh, or since I think it's July 28th, that start when he went eight shutout innings, he's got a 244 ERA and he's been sufficiently price-like. And I think that's the the difference in addition to Porcello and Stephen Wright and all the more surprising things. It's it's just things that you ought to count on coming back to, to normal. Yeah, and some of the advanced stats had been saying, no, this is still David Price. He's still good. Don't look at the ERA for much of the season. But the ERA was stubbornly resisting coming back to where those more defense-independent or comprehensive stats said it should be. And, and now that's sort of normalizing. And all four of these teams have beaten their preseason projections to varying degrees. Of course, the Orioles have been one of the two biggest surprise teams in the league, really in the majors this year, at least in the positive direction. Only the Rangers, who have that crazy 32-10 and 10 record in one-run games, have beaten their preseason projections by as much as the Orioles. And, of course, the Orioles beating projections is nothing new. Orioles fans are probably tired of hearing about the projections, but the projections did have the Orioles in last place coming into the season. And they probably have spent the most time in first place, I would think, throughout this year. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they've done that in a really interesting way. We, we don't need to dwell on the Orioles because Mallory Rubin has been on this podcast before, (laughs) but (laughs) we, uh, can just acknowledge that, you know, they are a strangely constructed team that never steals bases. They have 16 steals on the year. They've scored the highest percentage of their runs on homers in the majors this year. They might break a major league record for a home run. So what they do, they do very well. But they have had a, a really shaky rotation all season long that they've just managed to out hit and out Zach Britton well enough to hang in there. And I mean, this is a team whose whose big midseason acquisition was Wade Miley, who has, I believe, allowed 34 runs in 35 and a third innings as an Oriole over eight starts and somehow is still in the rotation. He started last night. So. They've been relying on Ubaldo. They've been relying on Miley, Gallardo. They've tried to work in some younger guys, and and they got some work out of Dylan Bundy for a while. But it's been a a very patchwork rotation, and they've somehow made it work. Yeah, I was going to say the the reason Wade Miley is still in the rotation is because, you know, you've seen the alternative. (laughs) Right. And the Blue Jays, who you just wrote about, everyone expected them, I think, to steamroll everyone offensively because that's what they did last season. And, you know, they've been a a credible offensive team, but their pitching has really carried them to a, to a great extent. I know they are, their starting rotation is, is leading the majors in war, at least in Fangraph's war. And that was sort of expected to be the weakness coming into this year. But the, the lineup has, been you know a little more vulnerable than it looked late last year and that we thought it would be this year yeah and the the pitching really is the the interesting thing and and this was something that i wrote when i was uh writing my piece that was the the intriguing thing that jumped out at me is that they've got 
uh, two extreme ground ball pitchers in Stroman and Sanchez and the extreme fly ball pitcher in Estrada. And they've managed to, because of that, sort of have the best of, of both worlds by getting guys with extreme approaches. They get the, the high ground ball rates from their two youngsters, but it, they get also get the extreme low Babbitt from, from Estrada. And then you fact, you know, Jay Happ's having a career year. R.A. Dickey, you know, as much as, as people uh, might be disappointed, he's not still Cy Young winning. R.A. Dickey is still a league average pitcher who goes out there and you know will give you six innings every night, and that's you know from your fifth best starter, that's better than probably twenty seven other teams are getting. So mm-hmm. that's I mean that's been the that's allowed them to to weather some of their struggles at first base, and you know Troy Tulowitzki taking a while to get hot and and that sort of thing. Yeah. And then there are the Yankees who make this is the real thing. Yeah, this is like this is the reason I wanted to do this, because like they're supposed to be dead by now. Like they were they were at a playoff contention to the point where they sold Beltran and Miller and Chapman. And here they are. They're what, like two games out of the second wild card. And uh, they are, are like. They're supposed to go away, and then they brought up all these rookies who are better than the old guys that they sold, or at least performing better. I saw a, yeah. a stat floating around about how uh, Dylan Batances and Tyler Clippard have been just as good as Miller and Chapman were before the trade. This is a team that doesn't need breaks, like you know. <laughs> no, yeah, legions of Yankees haters are across the country are just simmering about this because this was supposed to be the year that the Yankees would finally break that streak of winning records going back to 1993, and now they are very unlikely to end it. And and yeah, I mean, if you compare where they are to where we thought they would be or where the stats said they would be coming into the season, the Orioles qualify as the biggest surprise by that metric, but. Just going by sort of sentiment and looking at this lineup and looking at this staff day after day and not knowing any of the names and not being impressed by the stats and wondering how this team is doing this day after day. I mean, they've been outscored by 12 runs on the season. You're not supposed to have a winning record if you've been outscored. And they have not only a winning record, but they're nine games over 500. They're not even just scraping by. So if not for the Rangers crazy one run record, we would probably be talking about the Yankees crazy one run record, which is 24 and nine. And in the Rangers case, it's a little harder to make the case that they have an outstanding bullpen that could account for that kind of thing. In the Yankees case, it's easier to make that case because for most of the season, they had maybe the three best relievers in baseball on their team. And one of those guys is still there. And as you mentioned, Clippard has been excellent, too. So that could be part of it, but that can't be all of it. <laughs> there's a there's a lot of flukishness going on here, and that must be extremely frustrating to everyone who wants to see the Yankees fail just once, but instead they keep running out Luis Sessa and Kirby Yates and Jason Shreve and Nick Goody and Anthony Swarzak for a while there, and somehow they are still in this thing. Long shots, but still in this thing which is kind of amazing because, you know, not only did they trade Chapman and Batances, they traded Carlos Beltran, who was basically their only good hitter to that point in the season. And excluding Gary Sanchez, they I don't think they have a hitter who's been better than league average this year who's still on the roster. So it's really perplexing to see where those runs have come from. The Red Sox are a little more explicable. In fact, you could make a pretty good case that the Red Sox should be much better than they are. Yeah. Like if if part of the reason for this 
AL East quagmire this late in the season is that a couple teams have beaten expectations. You could also point out that the Red Sox have played a lot better than their 81 and 52 record would suggest if you go by their base runs record, which is a, a fan graphs way of looking at things that sort of tallies up the underlying performance and says, well, you should have won this many games and you should have lost this many games. They should be 10 games better, which is one of the, the larger deviations from actual record. So part of it is that the Red Sox probably through sequencing or a lack of clutchness this particular year or whatever it is have underplayed how good the, the stats say they should be by starting clay buckholtz 18 times <laughs> yeah it could be part of it yeah they've got i mean they've got the best run differential in the american league by 71 runs so right. this was and you would think that uh not only just looking at the names in the lineup but if you said that the bradley's breakout is going to stick and that mookie betts is going to be an mvp candidate and porcello and wright are going to pitch as well as they did like you'd expect them to be about yeah about 10 games better than they actually are but it's uh, yeah i mean it's it's sequencing it's randomness it's they've had weaknesses at, at other uh Positions. It took them a while to settle on Sandy Leon behind the plate and uh, putting Ryan Hannigan and Christian Vasquez back there will eat in your offense to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. And it helps when Sandy Leon then becomes right. the best hitting catcher. Speaking in of things I can't explain. <laughs> right. June Lee tried to unravel that mystery in a piece for the ringer last week. So we're lucky that it's worked out this way, I suppose, if you are just a general baseball fan and not someone who's being deprived of a playoff spot because of the AL East success. Because absent this race, there's not much compelling left, at least in the division race. So the AL East has these four teams within five games of first. The only other division that has even one trailing team within five games of first place is the NL West, and that's where the Giants are four games behind the Dodgers. So if not for the AL East, we would be depending solely on the wild card for excitement down the stretch. So I suppose it's a good thing. Yeah, and the, the National League wild card might be close, but it is certainly not exciting right now. <laughs> yeah, right. So the question is, how is this all going to play out, of course? And you can just glance at the playoff odds if that's the way that you look at these things. And the Red Sox have roughly a 70% chance to hold off the field and take this thing. And, and really, I can't come up with a compelling reason not to pick the Red Sox. And hey, I'm a New Yorker. I wouldn't mind picking against the Red Sox. But there's no really great reason to do that because they were expected to be the best team coming into the season. They've been the best team thus far. They have the two-game lead, which should probably be larger than it is. And there's no reason really to expect them not to be the best team going forward, I I think. Do you yeah. have any, any different opinion? No. And, you know, 10 days ago, I was saying the same thing about the Blue Jays that, you know, I think the Red Sox might be a, a slightly better team than the the Blue Jays, but the difference isn't, I don't even know that there's a game's worth of difference over the course of two and a half weeks. So, you know, right. for no other reason than the Red Sox are already up in the division. That just seems to be, you know, I, I would take that, that two game lead over almost any disparity in talent. And it's really not that great between those two teams. Yeah. I mean, over this small span of time, of course, any sort of weirdness can happen. And that's why. And it will. <laughs> and it probably will based on how things have gone. And, and that's why you only give the Red Sox a 70% or so chance because 
it's very conceivable that someone could get hot over the remaining 19 games. I mean, 19 games, that's all that these teams have left to play. And 19 games is how long the playoffs last after the play-in game. And we always say that the playoffs are a crapshoot. Well, so is 19 games worth of regular season performance. So anything can happen, but there's no real reason to bet on anything other than the Red Sox taking this happening. I think one thing to keep in mind is that these teams play each other almost exclusively from here on out. So of the 76 combined games still on these four teams' schedules, 64 of them come against other AL East teams, and 52 of them come between non-Rays AL East teams. So these teams play each other in 52 of the remaining 76 games, which is, I guess, a good thing if you are a fan of one of the teams that's trailing in this race, because you do, as the September cliche goes, control your own destiny. You can win this thing just by winning out. And that's good, I guess. It also means that there aren't really any vast disparities in strength of schedule that you could point to and say that, you know, this team has a, a much weaker slate coming up than that other team. Not that that would really make that much of a difference over a 19-game stretch. You know, with the expanded roster, this is a, the time of year where if you run into a team that's, you know, 20 games out of first place and is is letting its it's a triple a team to sort of come up and see what you got then that could be a i mean that's it might um exaggerate the effect of, of strength of schedule even more than we might think just looking at the at the raw uh, one loss numbers so right but like you said there's going to be very little of that in this race yes not many non-contenders still on the schedule and the season-ending series between Boston and Toronto has some potential to be exciting. That's going to be their, fun. Their past series just this weekend was very exciting. Boston took two or three, but there were a couple excellent tense games in that series. That was in Toronto. The final series in the, the last three games of the regular season will be in Fenway. And so there is at least the potential for, for a those, fight. Yeah, for something dramatic, <laughs> for something decisive at the very end of the season, which is nice to see. I guess because there are all these head-to-head -head games, there is some potential for one team to really separate itself. And at the end of the year, it might look like this race wasn't quite as close as it is right now. But it's also very possible that this will really come down to the, the last few games of the season and we could see something exciting shape up. So it's weird, it's wild and wacky, and it's been fun to watch. Yeah, since you brought up 14 pennant rates, I've been thinking of of uh, 1967 in the American League where there were four right. teams going down to, to the last weekend. Yeah, right down to the very end of the schedule. There were four AL teams within four games of first place. And you can look at a full list if you're interested in my article. I, I jotted down all the leagues that have had a race this close right up until the end of the season. So uh, we have covered this. We can't tell you what will happen because we couldn't have told you that this would happen so far, but it's something to watch over the rest of the regular season. And we will get to our interleague play discussion after a quick word from our sponsors. Today, I want to tell you about Betterment. It's never too late 
great to save for retirement and to pursue other financial goals, even if you've retired already. And Betterment has changed the industry by making investing easier at a lower cost. My dad always told me to take an accounting class so I would know what to do with my money. I registered for one, I went to one or two classes, and then I transferred out during the ad drop period. I couldn't take it. I don't mean to offend any accountants in the audience. We need what you do. And I find Ben Wyatt funny too, but it just wasn't for me. So instead of learning how to manage my own money, I became an English major and made sure I'd never have all that much money to manage. But I've been hearing about Betterment in the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg and TechCrunch. It's the largest independent automated investing service, managing more than $5 billion for over 175,000 customers. The financial services industry has embraced technology and innovation through the creation of automated investing, meaning that you keep more of your money with fees that are a fraction of what you pay with traditional financial services. Excess cash is automatically invested, so every dollar you invest is put to work. And Betterment is a member of SIPC, which, for you lay people like me, means that your investments are protected. Bank-level security means your personal data is too. So right now, get up to six months of no fees. Learn how to do that when you go to betterment.com MLB. That's betterment.com MLB. Betterment, investing made better. And I also want to reintroduce you to new Synergy Gasoline, Exxon and Mobil's most tested fuel ever. It's been through and passed some of the most stringent tests ever developed. Developed in the same ExxonMobil research lab as F1 Fuels, new Synergy Gasoline is engineered by chemists who understand the science behind keeping engines clean and know the complexities of modern car technology. That's why it's formulated to keep modern fuel injectors clean while still working great on older engines. New Synergy is also engineered with seven key ingredients, each with its own unique function to help make Synergy Exxon and Mobil's best fuel ever. And those seven ingredients include dual detergents to help clean your engine and corrosion inhibitor, which is designed to help prevent rust from threatening your engine and its performance. Sounds good to me? If it sounds good to you, you can refuel with new Synergy gasoline today. Only available at the almost 11,000 Exxon and Mobil stations across the U.S. Energy lives here. Visit exxon.com, that's exxon.com, or mobile.com, that's mobil.com, for more information. All right, a lot has changed about baseball since 2004. Most of the players are different. The commissioner is different. The playoff format is different. The strike zone is different. Even the ball itself might be different. Almost everything is different, really, except for one constant, which is that the AL still owns the NL in interleague play, at least during the regular season. And to talk about why this is the case, when, if ever, this AL hegemony might end, and what accounts for it, we are talking to two writers from Fangraphs, Dave Cameron, who is the managing editor of Fangraphs. Hey, Dave. Hey, Ben. Mike, how you guys doing? All right. And Jeff Sullivan, who uh, what is just a regular old rank-and-file writer for Fangraphs. <laughs> hey, Jeff. That's actually my job title. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we want to talk about why this has happened and, and why it's going on for so long. And the AL has a 548 record against the NL in interleague play this year, but has had a winning record against the NL every year for 13 straight seasons. And that's long enough that there is a considerable amount of literature that has accumulated over the years to explain why this has happened. So Dave, do you want to sort of summarize the thrust of the prior research about why this is happening? Sure. So I think like the obvious uh, structural change between or structural difference between the two leagues is the designated hitter, right? So that's where everyone kind of goes first is like, oh, well, the American League has a designated hitter and the National League doesn't. So this is the one obvious difference. So therefore, this must be the cause. Um, I think it doesn't really make sense why the designated hitter would cause such a drastic imbalance. So I think uh, we've also seen people look for alternative explanations. Uh, I think the one that probably resonates the best, at least logically to me, even if it can't be 
totally proven out as kind of just the arms race theory of like the Yankees and Red Sox have engaged in basically a what 20 year war to, for the American League East uh, with you know generally top of the league spending. Usually those two teams are either at the top or very near the top in payroll, uh, and they just both happen to be in the American League and the National League's kind of uh, big city powerhouse, the New York Mets, have been not that well run and not that financially stable. That's so very had, diplomatic of you. Yeah. <laughs> I, as, as I'm known for my diplomacy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I think like the, the big market National League teams maybe just haven't been as aggressive in acquiring talent. And then the arms race basically says, like, if the Yankees and Red Sox are stealing one of the two wild card teams, then the West and Central teams also have to make their teams better just because they have two behemoths in their league and the National League didn't have that problem. So maybe the lower quality of play in the National League was just a response to the fact that the Mets and Dodgers and kind of the big spenders weren't building super powerhouses in, in the National League. And it seemed like a lot of those things were true in the past, so that the Yankees were the, the big spenders for a long time, and that seemed to maybe influence other teams in the American League so that a lot of the early adopters of sabermetrics were in the AL, the A's and the Rays, and the Indians and the Yankees, all those teams were concentrated in the AL. So for a while there, it seemed as if the quote-unquote smart teams or enlightened teams or whatever were disproportionately concentrated in the AL. And those things have sort of changed in recent years. The, the biggest spending team in the majors is now the Dodgers. That's an NL team. And a lot of the quote-unquote smart teams are now in the NL. I mean, every team is smart now, but the Cubs are the example of the best run team in baseball and maybe the best team in baseball. And that's an NL team. So a lot of the old explanations don't hold quite as well in 2016. I don't know whether there's just kind of a, a carryover effect where it, it takes some time for those things to change. But a lot of that stuff, the the axis of power seems to have shifted. Well, the, the Cubs this year have pretty well dominated uh, in interleague play. I wrote this article in uh, in the middle of July Fangraft was titled "Here Comes the National League," which looks silly now because you know we're talking about this. <laughs> right. But uh, at that point, it looked like things were pretty close, and the Cubs hadn't yet played an interleague game or something like that. Now they're 15 and five, but still, the American League is is running away with it this year. I think to Dave's point about the structural difference, one of the the things that I think sort of undermines that idea is that through 2004, so what is that, eight years of interleague play? Uh, through 2004, the leagues were even. The AL actually had a 493 winning percentage in interleague play, so they uh, there was a slight disadvantage there. And then it's really only since 2005 that things have gotten lopsided. The ALs won 55% of all the games in interleague play, and uh, I pulled up all the best uh, all the team records since 2005 in interleague play, and the top 12 are all in the American League, uh-huh. and the the Mets are the only NL team in the top half at 507. So there is clearly been a huge difference uh, between the leagues which is why we're talking about this in the first place but it's sort of died down a little bit as i think the dodgers have risen and as the cubs have risen the uh, the al had a very narrow success gap in 2013 and even this year is relatively narrow if uh, if you choose to look beyond win loss record which is not too silly a thing to do when you're talking about a one season sample size yeah and i was looking at records since 2007 for no reason other than that the baseball reference play index cut me off at 1500 results so i stopped there <laughs> and uh, over that span al teams have a 547 winning percentage in interleague play but if you just look at AL road games or, or games where the AL team is on the road. So in an NL park, 
over that same span. The AL has a 512 winning percentage, which is considerably lower. But on the other hand, those are road games. And, and so mm-hmm. they are fighting against the, the home field advantage. So if you account for that, it's really not that huge an effect. And, and even when they're playing in the other team's park, the AL has still been significantly better. So it does seem like there's more to that. I, Dave, why do you discount the DH theory? I mean, I just think like when I think about why the American League teams being able to kind of uh, pay more money to one player of limited skill who can do one thing and can only play uh, or at least can only start in the home interleague games and then has to sit on the bench in the road interleague games for that small difference uh, of kind of roster construction to feed this large difference in, in win percentage doesn't quite jive with how important one player is in baseball, right? Like we know like Mike Trout is the best player that we've seen in 50 years and he's worth something like eight wins a year, but we would have to have like the DH position in general be worth like four to five wins a year when like, especially over the last six or seven years, the DH position has essentially died out where now you have David Ortiz and Edwin Encarnacion. And I don't know who the third best DH in baseball is at this point. Like uh, it's just not a position where teams are stocking up on these big superstar guys anymore. It's just basically a rest position or, you know, a, 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 a platoon and often in some cases. So to, to say that the structural difference of having a designated hitter, especially considering like theoretically, whatever the resources that are spent on a DH by the American league, the national league team should be able to reallocate those to either the other eight position players or to their pitchers, right? Like it's not a financial disadvantage where the, the national league just gets less money to spend because they have one fewer roster spot to play every day. Um, and then I think when you think about like in the national league parks, the national league pitchers should be better prepared. They should know how to hit. They're going to have guys like Madison Bumgarner and Zach Greinke. So therefore they should have an advantage in those games. I think, I just don't see the logical reasoning behind why the DH should lead to this huge sustained advantage over time. So I'm going to do what I always do and blame ownership for uh, <laughs> you know, you know, when uh, whenever something goes goes wrong in baseball. I don't know that there's any like you know systemic structural advantage to the American League teams other than it just seems that the two leagues just the way that the teams are run right now the American League has more better run teams like 10 of the top 16 payrolls are in the uh, the AL and the Diamondbacks the Rockies and the Marlins which I'd uh, identify as the three most harmful uh, ownership uh, conditions are all in the National League and that's to a certain extent, I think like the the difference this year is not uh, an across the board. The American League is better so much as the top half of the the National League is is uh, just sort of a little bit better than 500 in interleague play, while the bottom four or so teams are just absolutely getting smoked. So this is a, a long winded way of saying: is there some you know? Is it possible that there's something structural about like the way that the teams are allocated? Like you know, you got the two extreme small market teams. Uh, the Reds and the Brewers in the National League. I don't know if there's anything equivalent to that in the AL. Well, I think the Rays would probably be yeah, similarly equivalent yeah. in terms of financial. And the, the A's stadium is, is small market, I guess. Uh, I, I do think, like, at least this year, that's definitely true, right? We have this huge imbalance. So the worst six or seven teams in baseball are all in the National League. And there's, like, this massive disparity between the good teams and the bad teams in the National League. But this is a recent development. I don't think this is necessarily something that we can trace back through the last 15 years, which brings up, like, an interesting thought, right? It's like we're kind of looking for a smoking gun of, like, a single thread that we could tie through since 2005 and say this is the sustained reason. But, like, 
it's also possible that it's like a cavalcade of multiple reasons that have changed over the last 10 years. So like maybe 10 years ago, it really was the economic disparity of the Yankees and Red Sox and the arms race. And then now that's lessened a little bit. And then, then now it's that a bunch of National League teams all just punted on 2016 and they're just atrocious. So they're losing a bunch of games. Like it's possible that the, the answer could be a malleable um, kind of collection of different reasons uh, over the last 10 years, rather than just one single thing every single year. Yeah. And that's the, the next, you know, we've we've exhausted all of these plausible sounding explanations and, you know, it just seems like there might be some minor factor about the DH or the Yankees, or, you know, Yankees outspending everybody. But like uh, in these 13 years, you know, in three of those years, the uh, the American League's advantage was uh, 10 percentage points or, le- or 10 games or less. And, you know, if this is in nine years out of, out of 12 instead of 12 out of 12, are we talking about this? And, you know, to say nothing of like the the NFC team has won the coin toss in the Super Bowl like every year since 1990 something. So, like, you know, this just this happens in the universe every yeah, so often. Right. We just get these, you know, things that should be equal but aren't. Everybody likes fun facts, right? We all like fun facts. Yeah. Sure. So since interleague play began, uh, American League DHs have outhit National League DHs by 61 OPS points. Okay, 61 points. That's great. Uh, National League pitchers have out OPS American League pitchers that have played by 61 OPS points. <laughs> <laughs> That's very convenient. Now, granted, uh, DHs bat more often in a game than pitchers do because pitchers are terrible at hitting. But still, it really couldn't work out any better than that. If you tweeted that, I might retweet it. <laughs> I'm on vacation, man. <laughs> <laughs> I can make him tweet. Don't worry. <laughs> so what are the practical implications of this? Fangrass has a war model, and that war model has a league adjustment. Yeah. So how should we be taking this into account when we look at stats, when we're saying who the best player in baseball is, what sort of mental adjustment should we be making, and when players switch leagues over the offseason, how should we factor that into our forecast? Yeah, so I think that's probably one of the more powerful pieces of evidence towards kind of the arms race model is we have seen that players who switch from the American League to the National League, their superficial stats improve. And players who go vice versa, they do worse. So it does seem like there's some talent, quality, uh, sustained difference, uh, which would kind of support the idea that the American League teams were just buying better players, either because they were trying to chase down the Red Sox and Yankees or because National League teams were poorly run or something along those lines. Um, so I do think the league model that, or the league adjustment we have in our war is is small and heavily regressed because it's one of those things that you can't really determine in a small sample, right? Like just the fact that the American League beat the National League play and really play this year doesn't tell you enough to know what the league adjustment should be. You need like multiple years of data, but by the time you've collected multiple years of data, the adjustment could have changed, right? So this is like something you want to pull back on pretty heavily. So it's not like this massive factor where we're looking at like every six-win player in the American League would be a 13-win player in the National League. I think it's uh, something on the order of like half a win or something like that. Uh, So it's a small factor, but it's definitely in there. And I think we've seen enough evidence that over time, American League players going to the National League will perform better um, on on a kind of like a raw stat basis. So we do adjust National League players down slightly. So if you hit, you know... 45 home runs in the National League, maybe that's equivalent to hitting like 42 home runs in the American League. This run of dominance is sort of uh, overlapped with an American League run of dominance in the in the All-Star game, too. And like that's that's one thing that kept getting held up. Like, is this league better than the than the other? But it's just such a such a weird, almost non-competitive uh, right. environment that like is it it's it just almost makes the whole thing seem more fluky that 
that uh, these two things have overlapped. You know, you wouldn't think uh, either league would have a, a run of like 10 straight wins in the All-Star game. Yeah, it's like the kind of evidence that you would never point to because objectively, you know, it's not very good evidence, except when you're trying to make the case that the league is better. You're like, oh, I'll just I'll welcome whatever evidence I can. <laughs> They've won 16, lost three, and tied one in the last 20 years, the American League. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. When you say that, it feels really convincing, and it shouldn't be. But, I mean, I guess it, it doesn't count for nothing. So, therefore, uh, I guess it has some standing. <laughs> And how does this impact the playoff race, or how has it impacted the playoff race before, either with interleague schedules during the regular season or when we get to the World Series? And over this run of, of dominating interleague, the NL has actually won more World Series. So I don't know whether this is <laughs> something that really skews that all that much, but I mean, should we be mentally or actually statistically kind of downgrading an NL team in the World Series? Should we not be just looking at its regular season record and matching it up with the AL team's regular season record without making some sort of league adjustment? I mean, I think that is probably the correct way if you're looking at just true talent level. Like, so, you know, the Cubs are going to win 102, 103, 104 games, something like that. Maybe if we tried to equivocate that to the American League, we might say that's only 101 wins or something like that. So we would pull back their expected true talent level just based on a lower quality of schedule. Uh, but then I think when you talk about how different the postseason is, um, just structurally, right, where now you only have three or four starters and you have a very different bullpen, you have very different bullpen usage, you have different player usage, uh, you have guys getting pulled in the second inning as soon as they get a guy on base. It's like a, it's essentially a different game. So I don't actually know the value of like the true talent regular season um, understanding of like whether the Cubs are a 101 or 104 win team. When that comes to October, like they're good. <laughs> That's kind of all the bucket you need to know. <laughs> So every major league team has an interleague, I don't know what the official word is, a partner designated rival or something like that. You know, like the uh, the Yankees and the Mets play an interleague every year and, and so on. Are you guys aware of any research that's been done into like, is there just one really lopsided pairing that might be skewing the results? Or is it, to your knowledge, something that, that we don't know anything about? Uh, I haven't seen anything that shows. I think like, so historically, the team with the best interleague record is the Yankees. And I think if you were going to say like, what kind of city pairing has had the biggest disparity between their American League and National League team. It's probably been the Yankees and Mets, right? Like, obviously, the Mets had a good run last year, but historically, the Mets have not been that good since 1997 when an early play started, and the Yankees have been a behemoth. So that's probably the one where you'd say, look, the Yankees might get a little bit of an advantage from being really great, and their every single season rival has been uh, taken by a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> and I guess that just gets into the larger issue of unbalanced schedules and how things would be fairer maybe if every team played every other team the same number of times. So it's not just interleague specific. Yeah, I mean, the, the fairness question is definitely one of those where it's like baseball seems to be interested in equity to a point, And then uh, if that if equity starts to interfere with uh, convenience or money making, then equity takes a backseat. Uh-huh. And here's something that we've gotten this far into the podcast without answering, because I think that fairness is bullshit. You know, I'm I'm about uh, are you guys in favor of interleague play? Because I'm staunchly anti interleague play, <laughs> shouting at clouds 20 years after this war was lost forever. That's one of those things where people will add, they hear that, oh, you're right about baseball, so what do you think about interleague play or the designated hitter? And I think, oh, they're fine. <laughs> I'm anti-designated hitter, too. <laughs> Which is 
totally fine. I can appreciate both standpoints. I don't really see any reason to be against interleague play. It seems like one of those things that if it had always been around, we wouldn't be like, well, what if we didn't play every team in baseball? What if teams just played their only? I don't see a real benefit to killing it, but I also wouldn't be like super opposed to not killing it. So if you're looking for a hot take, you have the wrong guy on your podcast, I guess. It would make me happy. That's your benefit for killing interleague play. Can there be like an interleague play hot take? Are there people who are that passionate about it besides, (laughs) I guess... You. Yes, we're talking to one. Yeah. Right. I'm probably the us. only person under uh, under 60 who's like staunchly anti interleague play. Like the leagues used to be, be, they used to be separate. They used to play like their own. They used to be almost separate entities. And there was this. It made the World Series. I was going to say it made the World Series feel more special. I don't know if that's actually true or not. But like you know, it's it seemed like the the champions of of two distant warring factions that were. Yeah, that sort of existed in parallel universe. Like this was Superman coming to fight Batman or whatever. Um, I don't know anything about comic books. That might not be the right <laughs> analogy. Wrong My understanding is that that was very well received when Batman and Superman fought each other in the movies. <laughs> I, I think from uh, at least I come from this, and I think uh, baseball writers and researchers come at this from a different perspective from just a pure fan where – I what I like about interleague play is that we get to have these conversations where we can examine the results, and it's the same reason why I like that pitchers hit, even though pitchers shouldn't ever ever hit. I just like seeing the results because it's fun to just have this like perform the science basically. Like, what can you do at the plate if you're terrible? Well, it, you can have an OPS of 300 apparently, and that's what you're capable of. So I love having the evidence. But if I was thinking about this as a fan, like I can't imagine. I like I like the Seattle Mariners. I can't imagine having a game come down to well the bases are loaded. They just intentionally are walked our eight guy, and here comes Hisashi Iwakuma to try to support himself. That just doesn't <laughs> seem like it's a lot of fun, but I love that it actually happens. And somebody I I think it might have been Bill Parker did like an informal poll of like are you for or against the DH and did you grow up rooting for a National League or American League team? I think that that tracks pretty well if, if I remember yeah. the results of that correctly. Cause I can't remember, or I, I you know, I grew up uh, as a Phillies fan and I can't imagine, you know, just being able to stick a softball player at the cleanup spot in your lineup. Although watching Ryan Howard try to throw to second base <laughs> for the past six years, I've, you know, maybe fantasized maybe is a better word for that than, than imagined. Yeah. So to me, like these two issues are basically linked, right? Like if we didn't have the difference in DH rules, then interleague play would be completely normal. Like the te- the league, the base would be the same, and there would be no question of like, should these leagues play each other? But because there's a structural rule difference relative to the pitchers hitting, then it makes interleague play a little bit of a, well, why are we doing this? The two leagues should be separate. But like, we don't have this in any other sport, right? Like in football, it's not like one league gets a punter and one doesn't, and they never play each other. Like, I, I don't know. Well, that other... would be cool. That would be extremely cool if one league didn't have punters. <laughs> okay, let's do this. Uh, football hot takes. How do we change the leagues? And uh, yeah, I, th- I think I would be all for the no punting league. That would make that more fun. Yeah, I, uh, I'm, I say keep teaching the controversy. I like having uh, both systems. And I think the MLB TV era would have killed that interleague mystique anyway. So uh, I guess we can end with perhaps how or when you envision this ending. If we talk about some of the structural reasons that have led to this being the case for the last decade plus, do you see anything on the horizon that suggests that maybe we are approaching the end of this period? So what I like uh, more than win-loss record, because there's a few hundred interleague games a year, I guess, but I I like looking at uh, 
OPS differential, which sounds stupid, but it, I like it more even than run differential. It's like getting really down to the, uh, the most granular level of who's doing better. And the American League this year has a better interleague OPS than the National League. I wish there was a better way to say this, but the difference is 12 points, which is a difference, but it is not very big. Now, last year, it was 60 points, and granted, in 2013, it was also something like 4 points, so there was some narrowing and then some spreading. But if you just look at 2016, based on the way the teams have actually hit, leaving aside any sort of context or situation, the American League has been only slightly better than the National League, and I think that as you have some American League teams who might conceivably think about selling off, like, who knows, maybe the White Sox decide to dismantle this offseason, and you've got the National League teams who've gotten kind of a head start on their rebuilds. I think the Brewers are doing pretty well. The Phillies should be respectable pretty quick just because of their resources. I think that maybe within two years, I don't know why two years, but let's say two years, I'll put my foot down, that I think you could have not any sort of dramatic flipping, but a pretty even uh, distribution of interleague records. I think that last year, be damned, the the bulk of the AL dominance really came between 2005 and 2010, maybe 2011, looking at this graph better that you're not looking at. <laughs> and so it's been closer the last few years, aside from a one-year blip, and I think it's it's going to continue to be pretty close. Yeah, I think if you look at the American League, the all the teams that are headed for a cliff are in the American League, right? Like the Tigers, their their reckoning day is coming, and it's not that far off, and they're going to be terrible in the next couple of years. The Seattle Mariners are super old. Blah, 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 <laughs> blah, blah, blah. The Angels at some point will trade Mike Trout, and there's nothing else there. Sorry, Cole Calhoun. Uh, so I think you know, like the, the teams that are okay now, or at least competitive now, but are going to be atrocious three or four years from now, they're all in the American League. And I think within probably the next five years, this will flip, and the National League teams like the Brewers and the Braves and these rebuilding teams will rise up, and some of these American League contender-ish teams will fall apart and will have the National League actually look better. If you visualize that, you've got a bunch of teams essentially going off a cliff, surviving, and then picking themselves back up, and then, I guess, climbing the cliff again? <laughs> oh, that's a that's a pretty good metaphor, actually. They've careened off the cliff. <laughs> Sounds like what you do in your free time. <laughs> Try not to Korean. <laughs> Jeff is a climber. Inside joke. So, yeah, I, I noticed that uh, earlier this month when I was writing about Gary Sanchez, if you look at just rookies in each league and you add up the wars... The wars are much higher for the National League this year, and that goes back and forth from year to year. But this year, the rookie crop in the NL is much stronger, and that's why Gary Sanchez can be a legitimate Rookie of the Year candidate, even though he just came up in August, basically. So maybe that is part of what you're saying, and the young talent is more skewed toward the NL. So basically what we're saying is enjoy it while it lasts, AL fanboys. Unless the Yankees get good again, which is like not outside the, the realm of possibility. Because the Tigers yeah. and, and Mariners are heading toward the cliff or whatever, but the Yankees just <laughs> yes did what they did at the deadline. Right. And they are still pretty good somehow. <laughs> All right. So we will end there. You can find Dave on Twitter at DCameronFG. You can find Jeff on Twitter at Based underscore ball. You can find both of them writing very frequently at Fangrass. Thanks for coming on, guys. Thank you. Thanks, guys. All right. So we will end it there. Thanks to Dave and Jeff. Thanks, as always, to Michael. And thank you to you for listening. We hope you'll subscribe to the show and rate and review us if you like what you've been hearing. And we'll be back with another episode of the Ringer MLB show on Friday. 